Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by a woman who, to many British listeners, will be a very familiar face. An award-winning broadcaster and journalist who anchors the UK's Channel 4 News, the UK's most popular adversarial nightly news programme, Fatima Manji has reported on major national and international stories and is best known for breaking stories with a global impact. It's also definitely worth noting that she's the first or at least one of the first UK anchors who wears a headscarf, something which led Channel 4 News to be accused of creeping Sharia. She's also the author of the recently released Hidden Heritage, Rediscovering Britain's Lost Love of the Orient. Fatima, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So for those who might not be as familiar with your backstory, tell me a little bit about how you got into journalism. Why was this the industry for you? Uh, well, I made a very informed career decision at the age of eight. I suppose you could say I've lived to regret it since or something like that. Um, no, I decided very early on that I wanted to be a journalist. And for me, it was about uh, a few things. One was about being where history was made. The other was about uh, addressing injustices that I saw and uh, being able to, to shape the narrative, I think, was also important to me. And I began my career at BBC local radio, actually. Uh, and then I worked my way up to regional news. I spent a little bit of time at the BBC. That's where I initially trained. Um, I did a few things for the World Service. And then nearly 10 years ago, I joined Channel 4 News. And that's me since. Shaping the news. How successful do you feel that you've been in doing that? I know there's a lot of young, ambitious journalists who will probably be listening in thinking that's exactly what I'd like to do. Mm. Well, I think it's great for people to be ambitious and to dream big. But I also think coupled with those dreams, we do need uh, a sense of reality about what is possible. I think that uh, it's important to remember that individuals don't change everything, that these are structures that we're talking about. Uh, so one individual can help shape the narrative, but one individual doesn't set the narrative. You're in an industry which has long been accused of having a diversity issue. Uh, mm. You and I both are aware of this. The latest figures suggest that non-white journalists comprise just 8% of the total compared to 12% of the general UK workforce. Does journalism have a whiteness problem? Look, diversity isn't actually a word I tend to use myself. Um, Back in 2016, I gave a lecture for the National Union of Journalists here in the UK. And that's the, the main union for, for journalists. And I talked about the representation of people of colour uh, on television uh, in particular. And I like to talk about it in those terms rather than using the word diversity, because for me, diversity is a term that's very much used by uh, companies. It's a corporate term. It can mean many, many things. 
when we talk about representation, that's a different matter. It's not just about uh, numbers. It's not just about having certain faces on screen. It's about truly representing the communities uh, that you are claiming to represent and, and that you are reporting on and broadcasting to. Uh, so that, that is how I would frame it. Uh, does journalism have a whiteness problem? Well, I think in that case, I mean, I, I said it's not all about stats, but the stats do speak for themselves. Um, we know that there is very little representation of people uh, from black and ethnic minorities in the UK. Uh, and it's particularly um, concentrated. Uh, the problem is particularly concentrated when we come to certain groups. And that's particularly black people. And we know in terms of religion, um, Muslims are particularly badly represented. So have things improved in, in, in my own career? Absolutely. Yes, for sure. Um, it used to be that um, it would be very un, it would be very um, uncommon to be in a newsroom where there would be many people of colour. That's changed. It, it's changed. And I see lots of um, brilliant, passionate, uh, excited young people, many of whom are perhaps more daring than people of my generation might have been. And that, that's fantastic to see. Um, so I think there has been some progress, but ultimately you can, um, I, I don't need to spell out the problem when the stats do speak for themselves. Uh, and as a result, I think sometimes the coverage speaks for itself. And that's what I wanted actually to touch on. I mean, for people who are thinking, well, what does it change to have, you know, an increased number, like you say, not just a diversity as a corporate term, but actual representation in the room of people from the communities you're actually reporting on. What is the impact of not having that? What is the impact of whiteness in journalism? What does it actually look like? Well, look, I think for all journalists, the very first thing should be first and foremost about getting the story right about actually getting the facts of a story right. And I think it's very hard to do that unless you have people from a variety of backgrounds, from different walks of life to help you do that. Uh, particularly when you um, have such a, a large proportion of your subject matter um, coming from those communities. So, um, you know, if we're talking about reporting on Muslim communities or reporting on black communities, I'm not saying that only a black or a Muslim person can do that, but it sometimes helps when there is someone in the room who understands that community, who comes from that community themselves, uh, and, and is very simply able to do, as, do something as simple as explain concepts uh, in a way that makes sense. Um, to give you a very recent example, um, Malala Yousafzai just got married. Um, the pictures are all over social media. Um, and, and it's been a matter of great hilarity to many of us to see that um, one particular newspaper, uh, an international website, I'm not, in fact, no, I'm going to name them, Mail Online, most read news website around the world, um, described her outfit as a nikah outfit. Now, to anyone from a Muslim background, that sounds hilarious because we know that the nikah means the marriage. Um, so the idea that um, this is a, a type of outfit is completely wrong. Clearly, they didn't have someone in the room to point that out to them. So for me, the very first thing is about getting the facts right. Um, and then second to that, but perhaps it's just as important, it's about your news programme, your coverage looking and sounding like uh, the country it's meant to represent. And uh, too often news programmes don't look like that. 
you work for a channel which was actually created with the mandate of serving uh, underrepresented communities mm. uh, in what you describe in your book as an alternative to the fusty BBC. Um, something you say it achieved in its early years, but you sound a little bit more sceptical about its success more recently. Why is that? Well, look, I think broadcasting has changed. And uh, when Channel 4 was set up, it was a new kid on the block. Perhaps it's easier to be more radical um, when you're the new kid on the block. Um, now it's it, it's one of the establishment broadcasters. So inevitably, doing things differently is going to be that much harder. Uh, and there is a new landscape. I mean, we're, we're part of that new landscape now. You're, you're broadcasting directly to an audience um, without a, a, a sort of traditional broadcaster. So those are all challenges, I think, for any established broadcaster. Uh, and I think it's perhaps less easy to think radically um, when you fall into to, to patterns of, of tradition. You mentioned something that I think a lot of listeners who might not be familiar with the early days of Channel 4 might find quite interesting, which was that back when the UK only had Four terrestrial channels. Channel 4 aired a prime time half an hour discussion on the validity of core Rastafari beliefs between two black activist intellectuals, which, as you point out, hinged on the question, is Babylon falling? You seem to be suggesting that, that, that we'd be unlikely to see that conversation today. Is there still a space where these conversations are happening in the mainstream or have they been pushed completely out of it? I think it's an interesting question. I think that, uh, look, I can't speak for, for, for any broadcaster. I speak only as an individual. I think sometimes some of the more exciting conversations are now happening in silos. And that's a shame because it means that different groups of people are having their own conversations. Um, and sometimes that that's important because people feel comfortable and safe talking about their experiences, perhaps. But I think it's also um, important that we should be able to have um, conversations that are considered niche or um, conversations about ethnic minorities, for instance, in the mainstream um, so that we can all partake in them uh, and that they are not seen as minority issues. Um, I'm not a TV commissioner. I don't have the power to to commission debates like that. And I like to think that there are some people who would be interested um, in conversations like that. We've seen some, some good examples recently, um, but perhaps there could be a lot more done and I think sometimes traditional broadcasters struggle to keep up with the pace um, as people are able to have their own conversations on social media. And the speed at which all of this happens now um, is perhaps a, a challenge. But I think there's still a place for traditional broadcasters to do things that are that are thoughtful, that are well um, planned uh, and that really uh, allow us to reflect on the state of affairs, whether that's political or cultural, or social or economic. Now, you've written a book, Hidden Heritage, Rediscovering Britain's Lost Love of the Orient. Um, I wanted to ask you why you wanted to write this particular book. Was there a personal reason, maybe, that you wanted to touch on this subject? Uh, I don't know where the personal begins and the political starts, I suppose. Uh, the book for me came about um, in late 2016. That was a big, a big news, news year internationally. It was a big news year here in the UK. And there were big political conversations happening about um, what Britain is, what its future should look like, what its past should look like. Um, and, and those conversations were being replicated in, in the US and many other places around the world. And for me, as an escape from uh, the daily grind of news, I started going to galleries and museums, 
a lot more as a way to sort of look at art uh, as an escape and inevitably um, those artworks and those objects in these in these galleries led to more conversation um, more questions uh, for me and so I started to see objects or people or ideas that I thought were interesting and not explained well enough and uh, I thought that uh, someone needed to share those stories and delve into the past as a way of reflecting on our current state of affairs. You talk about the search for the story of these objects also being a quest for a sense of belonging. Mm. Some of you, some people, of course, will look at you and think she's an anchor for a major TV network. She's visibly Muslim and yet seemingly accepted among the media elite. Uh, have you felt that you don't belong? And if so, what made you feel that way? Yeah, I mean, look, there are moments when I whether it's in the newsroom or beyond the newsroom, there are moments where you feel uneasy about your place in this society. And some of that comes from being a minority. Some of that comes from being Muslim. Uh, and I often think that, actually, that if someone like me, who has relative privilege in that um, I'm able to help shape one of the main news programmes, feels that way, then people with... Um, much less access to those news programmes, must must feel much more alienated. And I'm very conscious of that um, in my journalism and my work. And uh, I think that that is something that we should all be conscious of, that ultimately, when we produce a news programme, it's not just uh, a game. These are the decisions we make have real consequences for people's lives. And if we demonise any particular group, uh, or represent them in an unfair way, or uh, get the facts of a story wrong, that has real life consequences for people. And we have seen that happen. And I'm not just talking about my own uh, news programme here, I'm talking about across the board. We've seen that happen, the very real consequences of what happens when you stereotype or demonise a particular group. You say in the book that Britain is suffering from historical amnesia. Some might say it's a deliberate truncation of history. You chose perhaps a kinder interpretation in the idea of the nation simply forgetting parts of mm. its history. Why do you think this amnesia has come about? Well, I think I, I think some of it is a deliberate amnesia, actually. I think so the book talks about Britain's relationship with the Orient. And, and very simply, we're talking about the geographical area that's West and South Asia and parts of North Africa. And we can talk about whether we should use the term Orient maybe a bit later. Um, but for me, these connections and the stories that I found, some of them, I think, perhaps have been deliberately forgotten because there are uh, political players who would like to present to us a more monolithic version of Britain's past because it enables them to create a more monolithic version of Britain's future. Uh, now, that process is not simple. Um, the reason I'm kinder is because sometimes I think it, it's not malicious. I think, for instance, when you walk into uh, a stately home or a museum or gallery, some of those places are run by volunteers or staff on not very much pay. And so if they don't know about a particular object or you know, they don't have enough information. I don't think we can we can place the burden on those individuals. Um, I think that that is when I say, well, you know, there's, there's an act of forgetting, perhaps. And I think that one of the things 
um, we should say is that all of us have our own um, baggage. We all have a lens in which we view history. We all have interests. We all have cultural backgrounds. And so perhaps we pick out some facets of history more than others. And for me, I think one of the things that needs to happen is we need people um, from a broader variety of backgrounds to engage in telling Britain's history, because that will inevitably shine a light on different episodes of British of British history. What's, I suppose, quite perplexing for someone who, you know, I'm not a historian by training, but you'd think that, or at least I thought that, you know, history would be an examination uh, of of historical facts to the extent that you tried to accurately represent what had happened in a particular period. It seems from reading your book that the history we learn from our stately homes is actually very far from that. Mm. Um, and it almost seems, you know, and I'm not suggesting somebody or one individual has shaped that narrative, but there does appear to be a narrative that you're challenging in the book that runs through these stately homes. Mm. How would you describe that narrative that you've sought to challenge through I suppose, returning the accurate historical context to some of the objects that are there? I suppose it's a, a sort of small island, Britain against the world mentality, this idea that Britain and England before it um, was always some sort of superpower that ruled the waves and uh, nothing else happened in between. And for me, I, I start the book in Elizabethan England in, Tu in the Tudor period, and I end the book um, in the First World War. So that's quite a long period of history. Um, when I begin the book in Tudor England, Britain doesn't exist, it's England, and England is very much the parochial power on the world stage. It is the Ottoman Empire that's the superpower of the day, uh, and then there is the Safavid Empire and the Moroccan kingdoms that are also political players, but no one's ever heard of Elizabeth I. No one really cares about her. No one knows where England is. Um, it's only when Elizabeth I um, defeats the Spanish Armada that suddenly people think, well, perhaps we should take this ruler seriously. Perhaps this woman's got something to offer. But it, it is Elizabeth who's seeking interactions with the rest of the world. And for me, I, I mean, you know, I was educated at a British school and we learned a lot about Tudors and you will know from watching British television, British film, and, and many, many audiences around the world will know this. There's so, there's so much depiction of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I and the Tudors. There's lots and lots of it. But at no point have I ever seen any depiction of her interactions with the Ottoman Empire. And she exchanged letters. There were diplomats that were sent. Um, there were objects exchanged. Um, you know, I was in the British Library and I was able to see letters sent to Elizabeth I by sultans of the Ottoman Empire and the wife of the sultan. And there are fascinating exchanges and there are amazing periods of history. And looking at these incredible letters written in different color, colored inks with gold dust speckled on, on the letter um, and, and one letter asking uh, from a courtier of the Ottoman court, asking Elizabeth I to send the women of the court cosmetics for their personal use. I thought, well, these are incredible stories. Why have they not been portrayed in film? Why did we never learn about them in all this incessant education on Tudors? Uh, and that to me seemed a real uh, missed opportunity, if nothing else, because uh, it makes the history more rich, more engaging. So uh, I forget what your original question was, but uh, <laughs> I think that um, there, are, there, are, there are stories to be mined and 
They're brilliant, interesting stories in themselves, but they also might change the imagination of what Britain is today and what it was in its past. And we, yeah. we like to think that, you know, the past was simple and there weren't complexities, but actually it turns out they were just as they are today. Yeah, I mean, my original question was about, you know, the the kind of vision, the, the historical depiction that we get mm. currently through the homes and the, the one that you challenged. But I think you, you definitely have answered that. Um, I was going to, uh, before I ask you the next point, I have to touch on the term the Orient, which mm-hmm. I know you know was going to be a controversial yeah. uh, way to describe the region. But I think you do provide... Uh, a, a, a very interesting uh, rationale for for why you did that. So, what was your uh, reasoning behind using a term which uh, effectively is rooted in Britain's perception of the region, rather than maybe freeing the region from that vision? Mm. Well, I, I thought long and hard about which term to use, and throughout the time I was researching the book and writing the book, which was which was a number of years, I thought, what is the thread that ties all of these, these objects and these places and these ideas and these peoples together? And the best term I could come up with was Orient. So, uh, and, and the reason I adopted that is partly because of the other concepts I didn't want to use. So for instance, we said it's a geographical area. Should I just have said South Asia and West Asia Asia, or the Middle East. And the Middle East isn't a term I like to use because even current day concepts have their own um, problems. So I think to, to talk about just a geographical term in modern day use would be problematic, particularly so because some of the areas that we're talking about didn't exist in the way that they do today. So um, one example I give is I talk about um, a pair of uh, wood carvers who came to the Indian and Colonial Exhibition in London in 1886. They came from Punjab, which is now in Pakistan, which obviously didn't exist back in 1886. Mm. Uh, It was India then. So can we call them Pakistani? Can we call them Indian? And then to complicate matters, the the architecture that they worked on um, took influences from from Egypt and Morocco and North Africa. Uh, And then to complicate matters even further, they signed their names in Persian calligraphy. So how which which country should that should this work be attributed to i i couldn't pick one um geographical area and then beyond that i think you can recognize that to some extent there was a an orient that was somewhat culturally contiguous and influenced by um all of these countries and that there is some uh, commonality across this this region but i think it, it it's still important when we talk about the orient to not engage in orientalism and I think that uh, it's possible to do that, but you do have to be cautious as you do it. I thought it was really important also the ways in which you emphasise a, uh, you know, the cultural continuity exchange, mm. a sense of a common identity. I think when we think of empires today, we very rarely think of Islamic empires and actually the real breadth of these empires and the stretches of land and cultures and peoples that they actually encompassed who thought of themselves, if not territorially, but at least at some level as united. It's been a long time since, I'll be honest, I've read something that reflects that identity. Um, So I hear you on that point. Um, I wanted to ask you about this idea of appreciation because you'll, you talk about alongside the will to dominate the Orient, that there was also uh, an appreciation of it. 
Do you think that the two can coexist? Can knowledge in service to power and domination also be couched in respect? Or how do you how do you think of the connection between the two? I think it's a difficult one because I think they did exist. Uh, and it, that's a complicated reality to acknowledge. So uh, it, throughout the book, I talk about this sort of two tracks that are, that are ongoing between curiosity and conquest. So as I say, I begin the book at a time when England is the parochial power and there's a curiosity about the Orient, partly because commercial links are sought. So Elizabeth I is cut off from, from Catholic countries. She now needs new alliances. So she turns to the Ottoman Empire, she turns to the Moroccan kingdoms. So partly it's a commercial um, decision. But beyond that, there is a genuine curiosity about the languages, the peoples, um, the products. So, you know, to stick with that particular time period, that is the period when coffee arrives in in England and it's seen as a, a Turkish drink and it, it's very successful uh, to an extent. And the very early Turkish coffee houses um, have their ha, have their owners have signs of their owners advertising their services with a, a sort of head of, of of the owner dressed in a turban. Uh, and these are sort of um, around Elizabeth in England, which, again, is a strange thing to, to think about. Um, but at the same time, there's a populist backlash against coffee because it's seen as a threat to the existing alehouses. And so and the wives weren't happy, huh? The, well, we don't know if the wives were happy or not, because <laughs> there was, a, there was a, a, very, a very famous petition that may or may not have been written by a woman called the Women's Petition Against Coffee. Uh, and in it, it's a, a woman implores... Uh, I'm not sure who she's imploring exactly, but she says that, that her husband is being stolen away by this Turkish enchantress and the dirty, muddy puddle water that is coffee. So you have, uh, at the same time as there is, uh, I suppose, elite curiosity, you have some some form of a populist backlash. Uh, and that relationship obviously changes uh, later on as Britain goes on to develop an empire and then ends up becoming the superior power on the world stage and the Orient is seen as the inferior um, uh, power. And so I, I sort of trace the relationship through these cultural interactions. So can, can you have respect at the same time as conquest? I think it did exist, but that's a complicated reality to, to think about. And maybe um, maybe that complicates our political imaginations too. I mean, I'd love to take that same concept and explore it when it comes to gender, because I do wonder to what extent <laughs> domination and respect coexist in gender mm. relations. But that might take us down a different podcast. <laughs> um, you, you say in the book that you'd like British people to think differently about our heritage. Mm. What needs to change? Well, look, I very specifically use the term our heritage because I don't think these stories belong to any one minority. Obviously, there are people who are going to find them more interesting than others. There are going to be people who see a sense of belonging for themselves as a result of these stories. But I think they are ultimately the history of this nation. And that is something that, that everyone should be interested in. Um, one of the things I do in the book is as well as tell stories about the past, I reflect on what those stories might mean for the present. So to give you an example, the very first mosque structure created in Britain was back in 1762 at Kew Gardens, um, which is a very famous botanical garden in London. And when I first learned this, I thought well, that's extraordinary. There was a mosque at Kew Gardens. 
And it turns out there wasn't just a mosque at Kew Gardens. It was a Turkish mosque. It was built alongside an Alhambra arch and a Chinese pagoda. Now, to be clear, there weren't any worshippers in this mosque. It was built as a what they call a garden folly, an ornament um, to make the garden look nice. But a lot of detail was paid to getting the uh, the calligraphy, the Quranic calligraphy right on the mosque and the details that derived from Turkish architecture or Ottoman architecture right. And the inside had a, a sort of French Rococo um, influences. So that was also quite interesting. Uh, and this mosque was commissioned by the mother of King George III, Princess Augusta. And again, I thought, well, that's that's a really fascinating story. And isn't that a lovely story to tell? But I don't want people to just say, well, that's a lovely story. I thought, well, if we thought about the fact that the very first mosque structure came to us in 1762 and that it was commissioned uh, by a member of the royal household, yeah. then perhaps we might feel differently about mosque building today. And so I reflect a bit on that in, in that chapter. And actually, that was one of the things I was going to ask you about, because I thought that the, the, how so that mosque structure no longer exists, right? It no longer exists. There's no sign of it and there's no trace of it. So uh, and I, how, how do you think? Right you, yeah, I wonder how people might react if today, you know, uh, anyone really said, you know, could we could we consider restoring something like this mosque structure at Kew Gardens and you know, what the response to that petition, which I think we can probably uh, safely assume might find a number of objections. Um, mm. What does that tell us about um, the difference in the perception of Islamic uh, identity as part of white Britain's wider identity today versus then then surely it was a type of exoticism it was something foreign that maybe could be appreciated from afar but maybe once the far becomes us it's no longer what exotic it's no longer the respect that was had from afar dissipates when it becomes part of the the, the national us how do you make sense of that Okay, well, uh, you know, let, let, let's test it now. What if I say I would love to see the Turkish mosque at Kew Gardens rebuilt? And uh, if anyone wants to start a petition to do that, I will happily sign that petition. So, um, and if any newspaper would write would like to write uh, about this controversy, uh, feel free to contact me for a quote. Um, <laughs> let's see what happens. Um, it, it's a very interesting question. What happens when, when the near becomes far? I suppose for me, in the book, I try to question who is us, who is. I hate the idea that you have this majority white Britain that is welcoming in minorities. So one of the things that I challenge is this. We have this imagination in Britain that uh, immigration begins in 1948 when Caribbeans come over on the Empire Windrush and South Asians from India and Pakistan follow. And that is the beginning of immigration. Um, and of course, that's true in terms of mass immigration. But in terms of interactions with the Orient, interactions obviously with empire, there's a longer history. And there are in the book, I, I point out many, many people of color who came to Britain, uh, some of whom led very interesting lives uh, and brought um, uh, interesting concepts to Britain, including shampooing, by the way. The word shampooing um, uh, comes to Britain thanks to uh, one particular uh, immigrant, I suppose we would call him, who comes from India, called Dean Muhammad, who set up uh, bathhouses in Brighton. Um, so I think I, I, you know, I would challenge the idea that um, it's so easy to distinguish between near and far. And, you know, it's it's fascinating when you start looking for this stuff, you see it everywhere. And 
I, I did an event with some readers recently and we were talking about various architecture of train stations that may have been um, influenced by um, uh, Ottoman architecture and Moorish architecture. So I don't think it's as easy to distinguish between who us and them is, even if there are people who would like to uh, make it so. You describe today how the dominant narrative is one in which Britain thinks of itself as the, and I quote, victim of Oriental conquest, a myth you say has infused the media and political language, and which you also say underlies all mainstream debates on immigration. How has the former colonial power come to depict itself as the victim of aggression in this equation? Uh, I suppose because people don't know the facts of history. Um, so look, so far we've talked about perhaps some of the nicer episodes that I write about, but but I also write about some brutal episodes involving um, Britain as a, a colonising power. So for instance, um, I write especially about uh, the British East India Company and how they conquered the kingdom of a South Indian king, Tipu Sultan. Uh, back in 1799. And that conquest involved huge brutality, uh, the ransacking of a city, uh, the, the killing of men, a fear for women, uh, and uh, huge looting. And those aren't my words, by the way. Those are documented in, in diaries and letters written by British East India Company officers at the time, including the Duke of Wellington, um, who is perhaps one of the most famous um, Britons of that period. Um, who, who wrote about the, the extensive brutality that was ongoing uh, and, and carried out by the, the men of the East India Company uh, army. So um, how, do you, how do you come to imagine yourself uh, uh, as a victim when you were the aggressor in the empire? I, I, I think it's because you've been uh, either handed or deliberately chosen to believe a warped version of history. I think, I think it's as simple as that. If you look at the facts of history, yes, sometimes they are complicated, uh, but... I don't think anyone can deny that great injustices took place under the British Empire. It's as simple as that. I thought in your book, what one thing that struck me, and I'm sure it was completely random, that um, many of the justifications given for territorial encroachment, which I think is the polite way for invading, polite mm. word for invading other people's countries. Conquest. Uh, mm. Yes was the idea that their uh, leaders were despots mm. um, and that their people needed freeing from these backwards leaders. Um, Can we see that particularly with Tipu Sultan? The depiction yeah. of him was he is a, an oriental despot and he is, um, uh, you know, a dictator over his people. Never mind the fact that, that, that a lot of people, a, a lot of leaders at the time were kings and um, the East India Company was quite happy to deal with the kings that were on side with them. They just didn't like the ones that um, perhaps weren't as um, uh, as willing. And the fear for Tipu Sultan was that he might ally with Napoleon and the French. So that was a problem. Uh, and when he was dislodged and um, his kingdom ransacked and his belongings and the loot brought, brought back to Britain, many of which um, many of these objects sit in stately homes and, and museums today. Uh, after that happened, a, a puppet king who was, I believe, six or seven years old was installed. Um, 
so yes, that 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 is a theme, and perhaps that's a theme we might recognise in uh, more contemporary discourse too. Yes, I was going to say not at all a familiar pattern if mm. we can think of more current patterns uh, of engagement with uh, the Middle East in particular. Um, I, I was going to ask you about statues. Um, mm. I think you weighed in quite subtly into this conversation which of course has come up around you know what do we do with some of the relics of empire that now stand at the centers of our squares and sort of stand there not in an uncritical way in more of a like you know look at these great people way um and so uh, but you, you am i right in thinking that your view is that there's you're calling for more contextualization less maybe mm. tearing down of existing monuments and statues and more contextualization or do you think there's room for both or what's your what's your take on the idea that our public spaces need a rewrite so it's interesting because i when i began writing this book the the current iteration of black lives matter hadn't happened and in the process of writing this book it did happen and then i started to think about some of those conversations um as sort of a, a background uh, context um one of the things I want to say on statues is I think there is often a very loud, shouty debate that leads to more heat than light. And that's not something that I, I want to see because I'm not sure that's necessarily helpful for the purposes of the conversation that we're having. I think there is a moment for that. So am I saying that all statues should remain? No. Am I saying that some statues should be torn down? Maybe. Um, I think it, I think Statues are only one part of the conversation, and it's very easy to get distracted by these very visible symbols in public squares, but they cannot be the only conversation. And I think that some people who don't want the stories of empire, who don't want the stories of the past told, would like us to just focus on the story of statues all the time because it's an easier thing to, to win because then you, you can just present people as sort of um, violent thugs who want to tear down statues. I think it's important to look at these things on an individual case. And I'd say the same for, for instance, some of the objects that came to Britain um, uh, as colonial loot, as plunder. You know, should they be returned? There's a similar debate ongoing around those. Yeah. I think you have to look at each object and each statue uh, on its own terms to look at how it came about, why it came about, what context is offered today. At the very least, I think there should be context offered. And I think that's a starting point. And um, certainly the, the, the statue that, that came down in, in Bristol of Edward Colston, um, I think it's worth noting for a number of years, people had been pushing for context and that context hadn't been offered. And, and, that, it, and that is how they came about uh, tearing down that statue. Now, I'm not saying that I approve or disapprove of those actions. I'm just saying it's worth noting that there had been a drive for context and that hadn't, hadn't been agreed on. Um, and look, some of them, some of these things are going to be difficult conversations. There isn't a simple answer. One thing I would say, though, is I think that sometimes in the in the quest to um, acknowledge history, we may end up inadvertently um, denying history or allowing people to forget history. So, something existing, whether it's a statue or an object, if context is offered up in the right way, may make people think about the past much more than they do at the moment. Um, and if you were to take away certain statues from certain places, I think you could pretend that there was no longer a problem. So, I, I mean, I, the statue that I talk about is the statue of, of Clive, as people may know him as Clive of India, you know, 
very famous person who is involved in the conquest of India, and his statue stands outside the Foreign Office in London today. Now, should that statue necessarily be taken away? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that would be a good idea, because it might allow you to forget the origins of how the Foreign Office itself, that building, was built, uh, and the history of Britain's uh, empire. So I think maybe that's fudging the answer, but I think it depends on each each statue and that there is a more complex conversation to be had. Thank you so much. We're now going to move to uh, the quick fire round. Um, so quick questions with quick answers. Mm -hmm. What is your definition of whiteness? Well, for me, I think uh, if I can say what I don't think it is first, I don't think it's about people with white skin colour. This is not about measuring levels of melanin. I think it's about a system of power and in some contexts, privilege. And it's as simple as that. What is the root of racism? Oh, God, that's such a big question. Um, I don't I don't know. I, I, I don't feel I don't feel equipped to answer that question. I think it's I think it's too big for a quick fire round. I'm sorry. That's OK. What is the opposite of whiteness? Ah, right. So if if I if I say that the whiteness is a system of power, the opposite of whiteness perhaps would be respect and racial equality. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? No, I don't think we can live in a post-racial world. Uh, and I'm not sure that we would want to. Um, while racial categories change, I think sometimes we can acknowledge difference without being bigoted or prejudiced about it. If you had to choose the greatest challenge in your experience, white liberals or white conservatives? Uh, I'm going to say white conservatives, and that's perhaps a controversial answer. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? I think it can be as long as we don't reduce it to uh, all black and brown people good, white people bad. I think that's a, that's a terrible way of thinking. Um, for me, it's about kinfolk and not skinfolk. Thank you so much, Fatima Manji, for joining us. If people want to connect with you, your work, your ideas, where would you like them to go? Uh, Twitter. I'm not as good on Instagram, but I'm trying to be. But Twitter is probably the best place. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again for taking the time to talk to thank me. Thank you for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.